Red Glow is an everything photography podcast covering the entire range of photography from chemical, darkroom, and alternative-based processes all the way to modern digital photography and beyond. Be sure to visit us at www.underredglow.com. And now your host, John Milliker Jr. Hello and thank you for joining us for special episode 100 of the Under Red Glow podcast. Christine. Hello. 100 episodes. Yes. Of an audio-only podcast of a visual medium yes and we've made it this far <laughs> my name is john miller i'm a full-time photographer who practices teaches and demonstrates nearly every photographic process in history including modern digital gear techniques and with me in studio is my co-host and lovely wife christine she practices and demonstrates many processes and is our entry-level process a kids class instructor welcome christine good evening we have a very special person on the on the line we do I mean, it's going to be in the it's going to be in the podcast notes or the title right. or whatever. Right. Very special guest, live from Colorado, and uh, without any further ado, we're going to just uh, take a quick word from our sponsor. We're going to come back in with Quinn Jacobson, live from Colorado, right when we get back after this word from our sponsor. We are really, really lucky to have a a, a good friend of ours. You may know him. You may not, depending on if you're in the, the whole alternative process scene uh, and, and just the beautiful artwork. We have Quinn Jacobson live from Colorado. Welcome, Quinn. Thank you, John and Christine. It's great to be with you again and, and talking about photography. I love it. Thank you for having me. Qu Quinn is, is you know, we'll, we'll ask Quinn, to, you know, kind of give us the, the five cent tour of his, of his life and his, and his process getting to where he is now. But I really want to say that Quinn has been very generous. He has talked for our local camera club several times. He he just a couple weeks ago talked to the the kind of the the organizing body of Maryland camera clubs, or it's not really an organizing body. It's kind of like a like a membership based uh, organization called Maryland Photo Alliance. And uh, and and Quinn is just Quinn is somebody that I always looked up to when I started. Like, hmm, all I have left is collodion. Who do I need to figure out? And and I found Quinn's stuff, uh, and and Quinn's Quinn is is a very unique individual in the fact that he's always sharing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that when when the thing Quinn. By the way, we we say the thing for the pandemic. I don't think there's any oh. kind of monetization thing on there, but we call it the thing. But when the thing happened, just like a lot of creatives decided, hey, we need to go out there. And we need to reach our people that we usually reach in person. Quinn did the same thing and, and Quinn had some, you know, had weekly shows and he's just so generous in, in showing people the process. Quinn also, uh, Quinn, are you, are you doing workshops anymore in Colorado? Uh, because of the thing I am not. Okay. Quinn has several amazing books and I think I've got at least the last three or four, two or three of them. Awesome. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, 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 you know, definitely it's interesting. And Quinn, we've talked about this before where it was very interesting when I, when I first saw your videos, you were very meticulous about chemistry and, and it almost, it almost gave me a little bit of a, a, a mini, a mini heart attack because Quinn was, 
Quinn was getting, you know, he was checking all his vitals. He was making sure he was not getting any of these chemicals leached into his bloodstream. And he's in a clean room and he's in a beautiful lab, lab style dark room. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. <laughs> and then I see someone like another good friend of ours, John Coffer. He's outside with chickens running around on his table as he's mixing collodion. <laughs> So I figured as long yes. as I'm somewhere between John and Quinn. Yes, we I'm have we good. have very we we have very different styles. John's John's great. We have very different styles, very different uh, approaches to the processes. But you know, in the end, it it is all about um, creating the image. So yeah, I tell people it's up to however they feel the most safe. And because you know, I had some legal advice. I I you know. I didn't want to be hauled into court uh, as an expert witness and, and somebody's telling me they read my book and, and, and I was doing something wrong and they followed it and they blew up their house and their neighbors. So I was always a little bit paranoid of that. But yes, you're right. I, you know, blood checks, uh, you know, making sure that, that, that we're safe. We want to live as healthy as we can and be as safe as we can. So you're probably right. It's, it's probably not the first time I've heard that. Um, uh, in the sense of, wow, you know, you're really meticulous on, on the science and the safety of it all. Uh, in my defense, my wife was an industrial hygienist. Jeannie, that's what her undergraduate degree is in. And when I met her, that's what she was doing. And she was testing for exposure to toxins and things like that. So yeah. have a little bit of, uh, um, you know, pre, uh, uh, pre, prerequisite there of, of how I worked and what I thought. And, and you do, you have to, re, you know, this, you have to respect the chemicals, but in, in my, in, in the fairness of it all, um, there was the legal and safety issues. So publishing books and selling um, information like that and telling people how to do something like that, you want to be, you'd rather err, <clears throat> excuse me, you'd rather err on the side of caution. I bet. And in fact, that's the reason why Christine won't let me play with the, the original daguerreotype process. There's another big one, right? Yes. Right. Uh, interesting. <clears throat> I've got a call tomorrow at one o'clock. Uh, a guy here in Colorado is calling me up. He wanted to do a daguerreotype workshop and he's writing a book um, in that time period. I've got everything here. A fume hood, you know, hot mercury, you know, iodine, bromine, all that. But uh, it, it is that is a very, very dangerous process as well. Um, but but collodion that process can rank right up there with it between the cadmium bromide and if you use potassium cyanide and ether exposure, things like that, it can really get, it can get pretty, uh, pretty dangerous and people don't understand, you know, breathing and exposing and the, the, uh, you know, explosion and fire hazards. If you've ever read uh, um, dangers in the dark, uh, dangers in the dark room, um, uh, that he really lays out uh, the the deaths and accidents in the 19th century just from wet plate collodion, and it, and it's 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 uh, one's kind of it's scary, but it, it's kind of funny and strange to read the things they do back then just from the lack of knowledge. I remember when when I first started with darkroom stuff, I was I was hearing some of the old hats on the way out, kind of saying, "Oh yeah, you just check, you know test your fix, or you just take a sip of it." <laughs> test your fixer and, and you're going to know if it if it needs if it needs uh replenished or, or thrown out and of course oh. you can't do that with collodion especially if you're using potassium cyanide right but uh just to just to kind of bring everybody up to speed not everybody is is on the same page as 
uh, as as the alternative process photographers, uh, the collodion being the wet plate collodion, the tin type, the amber type process, invented by uh, by the amazing Frederick Scott Archer in the, in the late eighteen forties. Um, but Quinn is Quinn is always he's always wowed people with his presentations, no matter if you work in the alternative process space or not, because Quinn's got this amazing artistic brain and. One thing that that I love sharing is, uh, and Quinn, you're going to tell it better. But I always loved when you made the the um, the uh, I can't remember what it was. It was the in your your last chemical pictures book. I can't remember what project that was, but you made carbon prints using some of the carbon from the sunflowers you received from the Native American massacre site. That's right. The the Sand Creek Massacre site, the three dead sunflowers. And I, what I did is I took the uh, the actual material, the sunflower, they were dead and dried up. And I, I baked it in my, a barbecue or in a, in a can. And then I ground that up in a mortar and pestle. And I added that to what's called in carbon printing. There's this gelatin that you add black ink uh, or whatever you want to, mostly, most of the time black ink. And I added that to the um, what the, it's called glop, which makes the tissue uh, for the carbon transfer process. And yeah, so incorporating and, you know, I got it's nothing new, um, and, you know, incorporating material into the images. Um, uh, when I was in graduate school, I had a friend named Jay Miller there. Actually, he moved. He was from Ohio and he moved to Colorado Springs years ago. He's a painter. And I went to Goddard College in Vermont for my MFA. And while we were in graduate school, his mother died and he took she she was cremated and he took her ashes and incorporated those ashes into a portrait he painted of her. Wow. So that always kind of stuck in my head about incorporating material into the, you know, the materials in the process. I, I always say, and you've heard me say this a million times, you guys have heard this. Um, I, I really believe those idea the materials and the processes should support the work not be on top of the work in other words the processes shouldn't be what's amazing about the work necessarily it can it can definitely be it needs to be part of it but it needs to play a supporting role rather than a primary role so incorporating materials and incorporating especially when you're doing uh, work like that where i did you know in my like you said in my chemical pictures book um, I, I did a whole series of uh, photographs, wet plate collodion negatives on Native American massacre sites here in Colorado, two of them, the Battle of Beecher Island out on the plains in, in eastern Colorado and the Sand Creek Massacre in November 1864. A lot of people have heard of the Sand Creek Massacre, but that's where the, the, the three dead sunflowers and, you know, the, the number three and the death and all those things play a role in all that. So, yeah, but incorporating material into the work and having that material and those process, su processes support that work or the concepts behind the work, really powerful. It really can can uh, make it make the difference between people having interest in the work or or not. Yeah, we've definitely bragged about the, about your your just being able to take an image and make it something more by by bringing the the feelings by bringing the land by bringing so many different factors into it and we try to, to you know, let, let our our digital photography people know that you also have a, a a little bit of a a little bit of leeway there not as much as i think as alternative process but 
you know, you can pick between different papers. You can pick between different matting, between different frames. One of the, oh, the, the one of the things I remember, and, and this really kind of planted that seed when I just started working in photography, where somebody photographed this old barn that was being torn down. They they brought home a bunch of the boards from the barn and made frames out of that exact barn. I thought that was really cool. Beautiful, yes. Th those kind of small details, and you're right. Um, in historic processes, um, the 19th, early 20th century processes that I work in, photographic processes. I think you have such tremendous <clears throat> latitude and, and, and ability to modify, especially when you get out of the kind of silver-based pro uh, processes. So working in carbon, like you just mentioned, the carbon transfer process or Rollins oil printing, um, once you get away from that, you, you, you can manipulate the gelatin, the colors, the way the ink's applied. I mean, it's really a lot more like painting like the pictorialists did with, with the early work that way. So there's, a yeah, papers and toners and processes. You have a lot more to work with in these processes than people understand. So it's a good point. But incorporating material like that is it really can make a huge difference. Quinn, before we go too far down this rabbit hole, can you give us the five cent tour about uh, about where how you came how you how you became Quinn Jacobson in 2022? Yeah, I'll, I'll get yeah I'll give you the uh, the Reader's Digest convention, condensed version here. I really got my start. My family was always. It, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna start this out by saying I had my first camera when I was six years old. <laughs> no, but but in, in defense of that kind of idea, my family was very active with photography, family photography. I mean, early on, we eight millimeter cameras, Polaroids, thirty five millimeter. We documented all of our family events. So photography was always there. It was always around us always being used so it was very familiar to me i was really surprised to go to friends houses and, and they wouldn't have great big photo albums or eight millimeter f movies to watch or whatever so I, I really that was it was embedded in my early on but i didn't get started in photography until i went in the military i served six years in the united states army <clears throat> three years in combat infantry as a mortarman a 4.2 inch mortarman a gunner on a mortar crew for three years. And then I did, I had a six year obligation. So I had to do another three years and I asked if I could go into photography. So they, they, they assigned me as a, in photography as a combat photographer. So I did that for three years. That's what really opened the doors up for me um, to show me that I, I really love this, uh, this, this, uh, you know, profession, if you will, at the time. And that's really where I started professionally, if you will, was in the military. I got out of the military in 88. I, I enrolled in undergraduate school at Weaver, Weaver State University in Utah in 89. I did what's called a Bachelor of Integrated Studies. It's basically a three major and a minor, uh, photography, communication, and visual art. And I minored in Spanish. And then I started working as a photojournalist. So I worked for several years, newspapers, magazines. Uh, I love documentary photography. I did picture stories and essays and things like that. Um, but around the turn of the 20th to the 21st century, around 2000, um, I, I started falling out. I, I, I kind of fell out of love with photography. Mm. Um, 
not just because the digital scene was coming on strong and I really didn't know how to handle I felt something was missing there for me, you know, shooting thousands of rolls of black and white 35 millimeter and medium format, large format film, uh, you know, go to the dark room. I lived in the dark room. I just loved all that. And to think of that was going away. I started falling out of love with it because I knew what was coming. It was obvious. So um, I was working on a project um, called Portraits from Madison Avenue. And, and these are all on my website. If anybody wants to go see that at studioq.com. But I started working on this uh, uh, story, uh, pitch, Portraits from Madison Avenue. And I was struggling with, with the way I wanted to present this work. And I had this book. I still have it, actually, uh, by John Zarkowski, The 100 Greatest Photographs at the Museum of Modern Art, something like that. I'm paraphrasing the title. But I sat down on my bed one day, picked it off the bookshelf, and I, I, it was around that time. I opened it up. The first page is a little, there's a callow type. The next page is a daguerreotype. And the third or fourth, fourth page in, there's a little six-plate ambrotype, a little tiny ambrotype from 1870-something, anonymous photographer. And, and it had all the imperfections and everything. It, it, something just struck me at that moment. I thought, wow. You know, I I have a degree in photography. I knew what this process was. In fact, I did albumin printing in my undergraduate degree and, and, and you know, some advanced printing classes. So I was very familiar. I'd never worked in the process, but I was very familiar with what it was. I thought, wow, is this possible? So I started poking around and yeah, it is. Um, started immediately started working in it. And so by by 2006 or so, I had this body of work completed. I had my first show in Wet Collodion in Salt Lake City. Uh, moved to Europe in 2006 and started teaching Wet Collodion in Europe. I taught Wet Collodion there for five years. Um, and in that period of time, I also did my Master of Fine Arts degree from Goddard College. Like I said, I got an MFA. The emphasis was in 19th century photography. It's an interdisciplinary degree, but I, I, I emphasize the 19th century photography. And uh, I, I, that's where I got a contract with a gallery in Paris. Pierre Gasson, he, he owned uh, the, uh, um, uh, uh, the gallery of photography in, in central Paris. And he gave me a four-year contract to do two shows. So I had two major shows in Paris. Uh, moved back to the United States, uh, came to Denver in 2011, started working on the American West portraits, another project that I did that was shown in Paris in 2012. The first show was Glass Memories, 2010, 2012. I, I had that second show. Um, I was fortunate enough to, at that time, I'd published a couple of books on the process. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a call from the, um, uh, the, uh, China, in Shanghai, China, in Hangzhou, China, the largest art academy in China invited me over to open up the Clothing Collective in China. Mm. So Jane and I flew to Shanghai, went to Hangzhou for two or three weeks and, and did all that, had an exhibition there and came back from China and started working on the Ghost Dance project that you mentioned, the Native American Massacre sites. And I worked on that for a few years and uh, I was teaching all this time. And, and I published the Ghost Dance in 2019 um, and the my final book in 2019 and 2020. I did a limited edition, then I released it to the public. And uh, then COVID hit. I stopped teaching. 
Um, all this time since 2015, we bought this land up here in the mountains in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. We started building on it, putting water in a well and all this water well and all this infrastructure on it. Build a house up here in 19, er, 1920, <laughs> 2020 during COVID and moved into it in uh, January. Uh, we've been up here two years, but we actually moved in the house in January 21. And I started this last project in the shadow of Sun Mountain that I'm working on now um, and working in dry, wet and dry plate collodion and doing prints. And that's basically in a five minute version. That's what that's my entire life in, in collodion and, and photography. But I've been doing this for almost 40 years now, 35 years. So that's 20 great. years in collodion. And a reminder, um, Quinn's website is studioq.com. And if you go to either forward slash blog, B-L-O-G, or if you just click on blog on the top of his page, uh, Quinn has um, you know, great images and the, the, uh, the In the Shadow of Sun Mountain prints. He's got a lot of exciting stuff up there. Oh, thank you. Uh, exciting. I, I, I've, I've hit a little bit of a stride here. I'm really happy with what I'm getting made and, and figuring out the processes that I want to print in and and there'll be a variety of this. I hope to have this done by the end of next year, maybe. I, I don't know. We'll see. But but thank you. Uh, yeah, my, my blog is really the repository for everything I do. And and um, if anybody's interested in that, they can they can look there. And I I should have between, you know, 25 and 30 prints in the final body of work somewhere in there. But this this work is really about uh, what, what, the Ute Indian tribe that lived here that occupied Colorado for thousands of years. Uh, they call themselves Nuchu or, or the people, the, the mountain people. And this isn't about portraits of Native Americans. I, I, I don't do any of that. I just I'm looking at the land where I live, uh, the conflicting feelings that I have about being here and colonization and all those kinds of things and raising questions about that. But looking at beauty and tragedy through photography I'm using dry collodion plates a lot here because I have to hike up high into the mountains to make some of these photographs and wet collodion, you need a dark room to pack along to do it. So a lot of it is not wet collodion, it's dry collodion. But but at the end, I'm, I'm doing mostly platinum palladium prints, uh, Rollins oil printing. And I just announced today that I'm, I'm gonna get a little press and I'm gonna do oil transfers. And so I'll do oil prints and then do uh, run them through a press and do uh, press them on a final support. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that oil transfer. But sure. in, in the meantime, and I'm sure you get this from everybody. We've asked you this twice on two different two different uh, uh, live streams. But for for our, our audience, what is your favorite alternative process and why? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, that's it. That, 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 is, that, that is a great question. And I guess it depends on which day you ask me right <laughs> now or which, which year, maybe right now. I, I really love uh, what, the flow that I have going with this work. Um, everything seems to fit right and feel right. So I'm doing dry plate collodion and making those two types of prints with that. And I, and I always love wet collodion. I'd have to probably put wet collodion at the top of the list and wet collodion negatives. I like them better than positives because it, we just talked a minute ago about the versatility. I can make several different kinds of prints. They're, they're kind of the original negative for all of these kind of historical printing processes, whether they're cyanotypes, gumbichromates, Van Dykes, Kelly types, whatever you're doing, 
that wet collodion negative was the impetus of, of that uh, process uh, when it was invented or people use the wet collodion for the most part. So wet collodion and right now platinum palladium and, and oil prints. <laughs> Those are kind of my favorite right now. <laughs> uh, we've, we've explained wet plate. I don't know if we've ever explained dry plate. Uh, wet plate collodion, of course, is called wet plate because you need to keep that plate wet from the time you get it out of that silver nitrate bath until until you're you know you're almost until you're done the fixing process really do you want to explain the uh which how you use the dry plate and kind of talk a little bit about, about what dry plate collodion is please quinn yeah if your audience knows uh a little bit about wet plate collodion like you just said uh you're you're it's called wet plate collodion because you need to keep the the plate wet it loses its sensitivity if you don't keep it wet so you, you just said it right there it's exactly correct with dry plate, the advantage of this is you don't have that obligation. It's it's dry. It's just like a sheet of film. Um, and and what it is, if you're doing wet collodion, you can do dry collodion very easily. You in fact, you only need one more chemical to do it, and that's that's tannic acid, and that's the preservative. So when you pull your wet collodion out of the silver bath and it's sensitized, rather than putting it in your plate holder or film holder and going and making an exposure and coming back and developing it and all the rest of it, you take it out of your silver bath and you put it in a tray of distilled water and you wash what we call that free silver, that excess silver off of the plate for a couple of three minutes. And then you pour on or you put in a tray if you'd like a uh, tannic acid and that's just distilled water a little bit of alcohol and about a three percent mixture of tannic acid and that what that is is a preservative and what that does is it allows you to reactivate the plate um, when you come back at whether you're shooting the exposing the plate the next day or in six months from then it doesn't matter it's just kind of it's just like film and and so it allows you to go to places and have access to places gives you time. Uh, there's no dark box to pack along with. Uh, there's no chemicals to pack along. You just take your holders and your camera and lenses and tripod and off you go. The drawback to it is the exposures are up to 10 times as long as wet plates. So uh, for instance, uh, I have a three, three or four second wet collodion uh, exposure here and the same thing would be four to six minutes in dry plate mm. but the beauty is the plates are very clean the, look and just like i said there some of these photographs that i'm making on in the shadow of sun mountain up here these could not be made any other way because it's just inaccessible there's no way you're going to get a tent or a dark box or anything to these locations mm. so dry plate is the only way to go why why do I choose dry plate over silver gelatin plate, dry plates, or even fit sheet film? Because I'm trying to retain that look and feel. It's mostly through optics. But the dry plate gives you that same look and feel as wet plate usually. And it's period sensitive. Because I am talking about the landscape of the 19th century. So the dry collodion process allows me access, convenience. But the drawback is if it's a windy day, or whatever, and, and I'm talking about a four to eight minute exposure on a plate, there's no way I can do that. But but I've worked around that a little bit by shooting a very fast um, vintage lens, a Dalmeyer lens that I shoot around F5.6. So I can get exposures between 
two minutes and four minutes usually depending on the light so usually that's not too bad um after that uh after i make an exposure like that or i, I take several plates out we go out and we take three plates out with us um we we expose the plates we come back i'll go to in, into the dark room and it'll take me about after i soak the plate first get it wet and some distilled water wash that tannic acid off of it the first splash of developer I put on it, I'm looking at between eight and 15 to 18 minutes to develop the plate. So the development's a lot longer, but you have complete control over the dry plate. It's not fast like what collodion and development or positives are like 15 seconds or so and negatives are a minute, maybe a minute and a half. Um, these are you know, 10 minutes to 20 minutes, depending on your exposure and what you want. But man, you can really, it's, it's a slow process, but you can really get the density you want or need for a type of printing out process you want to use. So there's a lot of advantages to dry collodion. The biggest one for me is the, the ability to actually, these images would never, ever be made in this process anyway, um, if, it, if it weren't for dry collodion. So I'm really grateful for that. And you know, the funny thing is, is I used, years ago, I, uh, I teach a wet collodion class and and people would be talking and say, what about dry collodion? Yeah, you want to do you know, tack on a little dry collodion workshop at the end of wet plate collodion. <laughs> and it, the, always the drawback was, oh, my God, it's an eight minute exposure and this and that. And we got to wash the plate and dry it. And, 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 and positive wet collodion is so much easier and so much quicker. You know, we're, we're in that realm of immediate gratification. So mm -hmm. it never really took. But I knew it, I'd worked in it, I'd taught it, and I needed it now to do that part of this project, so it really came in handy. Have you ever, I've never tried, I've only used tannic acid, have you ever tried beer or honey? Um, yeah, you can do, you can do, um, you, you can do either of those. And again, we're just talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, something to keep it wet, basically. Like the oxymal process is honey and acid. That's what you do. You're not really letting it dry out. Same with beer, you know, a sticky beer floor. You're not really letting it dry out. The the, the tannic acid is a preservative. You let that dry out. Uh, same with the coffee. If you want to do a coffee preservative, mm. you, you can use coffee as well. So there's a lot of uh, methods. I've also experimented, too, with um, collodio albumin, negatives that means you do um you do a layer of albumin collodion you sensitize it in a highly nitrated a highly acidic bath let it dry and then expose it those are very long exposures super crisp negatives i put an example of one up on my blog um, a little too involved for the process the dry collodion is easy really easy and especially if you do wet collodion the dry collodion the tannin, the ma major Russell, basically. I actually use, um, I use Sutton's, Sutton and Mudd's process from the 1860s for my dry clothing, but it's really just an improvement on, on Russell's process. But you, yeah, the preservatives, the desiccants, the, the completely dry plates would be coffee and tannic. The oxymal and the other kind of honey and acid or beer, all those they kind of stay moist. That's where you get. That's where you have that advantage. Gotcha. And are you are you using pyrogallic acid for developer for those? Yes, pyrogallic acid gallic. and citric acid in, as a restrainer. You could use uh, also use a gallic acid, um, a, a, a acidic acid if you wanted. But 
Oh, yeah, it's a little stinky, and people don't like to hang over plates very long with that stuff <laughs> going up their nose. So, glacial I, acidic acid. I love that you brought up the fact that that you wanted to photograph this this piece of work with a process that matched the the time frame of of you know of the story you wanted to tell. And exactly. That's a, and that's a big thing as well because a lot of people say, "Well, how could you?" How could you photograph with an old camera? Or how, how, why aren't you using a modern camera? And and it's it's pretty much the same thing, you know. You you're photographing something through history, your mood, your your soul, the the soul of the camera. Who knows what that lens has seen in its lifetime? And I'll never know. Yes. But there's yes. something magical about that that really energizes me, and kind of speaks to me to make a piece of work. And I'm sure it's exactly the same thing with you. You're right on, John. I think at the end of the day, like we were talking about materials supporting these concepts and not the other way around, um, your equipment, your the, the optics especially, right? My 1872 Dalmeyer 3B with a water house stop in it or not, um, that has seen, you know, right, it was new in its heyday right when all this was going down. It sees the landscape, you know, hand ground optics. It's, it sees the landscape in a very unique way. I love the spin in the background, the imperfection, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of elements, you know. Um, and I, it, it is really important to me to, to especially the optic, um, to use in the same time period that I'm talking about, the, you know, like you said, the story or the narrative, and also the format. So I'm using a whole plate format. And to get the whole plate format, I need a larger camera. And, you know, that's six and a half inches by eight and a half inches. Mm -hmm. So that format was the format, the heyday of the format at this time period as well, too. And the and the processes that I'm I'm using are same time period. So what I like to do is I like to tie in that history and weave all that history into the narrative, like you're saying, you know, and and, you know, what Aristotle, the quote from Aristotle, he said, the aim of art is to represent not the outward appearance of things, but their inward significance. Mm -hmm. And this is what I try to achieve through the materials and the equipment and the ideas, the story and the narratives. I'm trying to do that. That inward significance is important. And those putting those things in order and, and, and putting value on what the materials you use and the equipment you use and why you're using them helps to show that or, or talk about that inward significance of the work. And could you go out and do it with digital and do inkjet negatives and print? Yeah, you, you could. I, I think for me, I would lose uh, a lot of it. Um, my failure rate is very high in these processes. So it's only once in a blue moon, <clears throat> number one, on a good day, I'll, I'll, I'll expose three plates. But my failure rate is very high. I have to go back a lot of times and rephotograph things. The light's wrong. Something went wrong with the negative. I have some artifact I don't like on it or whatever it is. And so my failure rate's real high. So I get one or two images a week working full time doing this every day, preparing the plates, exposing, you know, getting around all that stuff developing, printing, all that stuff. I get one or two plates a week. I am a lucky, happy camper. I probably <laughs> I, I probably made 60 plus negatives on this work so far. I've probably only shown up maybe a half a dozen pieces of the work uh, because yeah. really that's all. I've only selected six or seven negatives, you know, 10%. 
you really you, you really read my mind because I was thinking to myself, what would Quinn say if a digital photographer came up to you and said, man, I really love how you put your heart and soul, but I'm just not ready for any kind of chemical-based photography. What can a digital photographer do to kind of maybe get into that same mindset to make, you know, put more meaning into when they push that button? Yeah, that's that. That's a great question. I, I would say probably um, <clears throat> to slow down uh, rather than doing 2000 frames on a, you know, 60 gig card and running them through Lightroom or whatever you do. I'd probably say go out and act like you, you've got 24 or 36 exposures. Um, wait for the light. Uh, try not, you know, try to try to make the image as close to what you do um you know in photoshop or whatever your post-production is and 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 then uh, on top of that just, just you know really slow down look at wait for the light look at things um the way you want and try to envision them don't make a whole bunch of of exposures and then try to try to be more contemplative with the work and then i think on top of that i mean i've seen guys make really beautiful um, digital negatives and prints, especially platinum palladium. I've seen really nice uh, enlarged digital negatives that make great platinum palladium prints, stuff like that. I think uh, transferring those digital, that digital work over into platinum or, or, or cyanotypes, you know, calitype, whatever you want to do. I think that's a nice hybrid kind of work process that would give you something similar in the sense of slowing down not making 2000 frames not adjusting everything in Photoshop, trying to capture it as it is and more, more like how we work in these historic processes. Um, and then, and then be able to show that um, and print that work the way you had, envis had envisioned it as you saw it on your viewfinder or in your screen. I think just slowing down and being more contemplative would be a, a first start. I think a second start would be is you, you treat your camera, you treat your, your editing space, you treat everything almost religiously. Yeah, yeah. You get, yeah, put yourself like, in that mindset. Yeah, just like we do, you know, packing around. I, my camera is a 10-inch 10, 10 square Chamonix. It's a 10 by 10 Chamonix camera. If I was smart, I'd, I'd trade it in and get a whole plate camera because that's, that's <laughs> the size I'm working in. But it'd be a lot lighter to pack around, but I pack everything up in an F, a big F64 backpack and I hike up in the hills and, and mountains here. And, and, and I'm really just getting there. I already, you know, it, it's hard to get there. So I'm, I'm already kind of broken physically sometimes, you know, or I at least feel it. And, and just the whole, the whole putting skin in the game that way really gives you a reverence, you know, and then, and then you've got the large front, you, you're just, you're made, the equipment makes you have that reverence and that respect because it is what it is. The, the old optic, pulling the lens cap, getting the timing right, waiting for the light, knowing, guessing your exposures. Is it two and a half minutes? Is it three and a half minutes? Uh, you know, whatever it is you're doing, having that respect and, and treating it that way tends to produce, um, you're just more present. You're just more cognizant of, of what's going on rather than you know rapid fire machine gunning off you know 100 frames or something and moving on with a little camera it, it, it does there is something about the physicality of all of this as well too especially now that i'm packing all 
you know, this camera and tripod and these plates all back into these mountain scenes and these these difficult. This last one that I made, this balancing dish on the rock. If you go to my blog, you can see it. This balancing dish on a rock that I found at 9,000 feet above sea level. Mm. It's 4,300 meters. And to hike up in there you with a backpack and a tripod, you, you can feel that. You know, I'm not 25 years old anymore either, but um, there's there, it does do something to you physically. You've got three plates. You've got the light changing. You're guessing at this this exposure. There's a lot of this tension and this drama that, that you're in the moment. You're in the flow. You're in the zone, so to speak. And it just makes you really, really aware. And every plate that I make is is special to me. And that's that's what I care about most is it's got it's got to appeal and and tell that story from my perspective and what I want to produce. So it, it, it's difficult, and I and I fail ninety percent of the time, like I said. And and I don't mind that because I learn so much from it that I just I, I get in a stride and I get I hope better each time. And in every project that I do, I have to figure out what it is that I'm doing technically. And I have to figure out if it's working aesthetically, visually, and 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 make it work. And when it comes in, man, it comes in all the way. There's mm. no, oh, I just kind of like it a little bit. I mean, I love some of these things. I just, if you could hold these prints in your hand and look at them, they just oh god you just they they move you they really they 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 they're emotional you put the story and the narrative the uh, the context and the attention uh, intention around them and they, they move you there there's something significant about like you said having that reverence and the respect for what you're doing rather than just kind of this is a thing pull up hot hail marry it hold the shutter down and go for it and now in a lot of cases that you know if you're shooting sports photography that's probably what you want to do i don't do any of that anymore so i'm i'm more contemplative i'm more interested in in showing that inward significance like aristotle said and that's how i that's how i achieve it through that other than not showing that outward appearance necessarily. That's not the point, but that inward significance and then mm. the processes, the equipment, all this gives me that opportunity. If, if, if I'm cognizant and aware of it. Right. And using all that stuff, you know, maybe having an old wood camera from the 18, you know, 1880s that, you know, it's a little bit difficult to pull the bellows out or it's a little bit difficult. Sometimes the gear gets stuck. It's easier doing that and having that, having that feeling. It's also easy when you're, you know, you're blowing, 20 30 40 dollars a pop on a on an image yeah. but you can yeah. still do that with digital photography you just pretend pretend those those 24 shots on your card are all you've got pretend like it costs ten dollars a piece you could put yourself in that mindset easy you can you can and i think that i think that is a good surrogate for getting you in the right, I, I think that actually that make you a better photographer, better artist. I think, and and it'll put you more in touch in in what it'll give you more meaning. It'll give you just just like anything, scarcity and rarity of anything uh, makes it more special, right? We we understand this. So so you're right about that. It, it is, and it's difficult. I don't expect everyone to grab a large format camera. And, and hike up in the mountains and, you know, work in these old processes. No, it's, it's, it's not feasible. It's not reality. But they still want to express. They still want to work in photography. They still want to do things. So I think if you go a little bit against the flow and not use so much manipulation, not use the 100 and 
320 gig card or whatever they do now. And, and like you said, just just have more respect and put yourself in that mindset. I think that would go a long, long way. I really do. Whenever I give a presentation, I say it is completely my intention to get you started in some kind of a, a photographic process. And I say, yes. right now, you can do anthotypes. You just go in your kitchen cabinet. You've got some turmeric, turmeric, whatever they, how they pronounce it. You can make an Tum- anthotype. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's great because you can use, you know, let's say you're a digital photographer. You can make a digital negative. You can hand color a a black and white print. You can really start using small chemical tools and just dipping your toes in the water a little bit and kind of feeling out how that how that feels. Exactly. That's that's great advice. And you're right. They can do that. And I understand. I mean, not everybody can just, you know, pick up all this stuff and go to workshops and buy all this material and all that stuff. And you're talking about what you're really talking about here, John, I think is, is engaging with the work. In other words, mm-hmm. that Charles Baudelaire, a French poet said, photography can't be art, art must contain a piece of the man or the woman's soul. In other words, he was saying, you have to be involved in it somehow, you know, there was painting at the time, you know, and that's very, you know, that was art, because the hand of man is all in that. I just I just posted today on my blog, um, Demache, the, the the Robert Demache, the French pictorialist photographer. He he said this is a great quote. He said, "Do not say that nature being beautiful and photography being able to reproduce its beauty, therefore photography is art." Capital A. This is unsound. Nature is often beautiful, of course, but never artistic per se. For there can be no art without intervention of the artist in making of the picture. Nature is but a theme for the artist to play upon. Straight photography registers the theme. That is all. And between ourselves, it registers it differently. Mm. So it may be a little hardcore to say that, but he's saying the same thing that Baudelaire said is that, that being involved in something like that. I think that's where you get the satisfaction. And people forget this, that, they go to their their cupboard and get tur- turmeric and, and and make an anthotype, you know, just expose it out in the sun for a few hours. And I, I'm like, God, look at look at what this this is amazing. You know, that basic feeling of producing something with your hands and being involved at that level is super. Human beings need that. Human beings need that. And I'm not talking about, you know, Demache was talking a little bit differently, like. You know, you wanted to be more of a painter than a photographer. But but the idea here is that we've always humans have always considered art not mechanical, but but human uh, human touched, if you will. And that's where photography got a really rough start. You know, scientists and technicians and talking about a mechanical process. So it, 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 it had a really rough start. And in some arenas, it still does, but um, <laughs> it, it can't be seen as mechanical so much as as being the hand of man being or woman being in it. And that's what these these two people were saying. Right. Quinn, we're, we're kind of getting at the end of our time. I want you to explain to me oil transfer, because this is actually one I haven't heard of. But according to your I'm, le- I'm reading your 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 description of it. It almost sounds like a Woodbury type. What is uh, what does that process entail? Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, uh, and again up on my blog you can read about it if you want. Uh, for those that are interested, it's uh, basically if you you know Rollins oil printing, take a sheet of paper, put gelatin on it, let it dry, 
cover it with uh, dye or bichromate, cover it with chromates, let that dry, expose a negative on it, then you soak that print and that gelatin swells. And where the light's gone through and hit those shadow areas, the gelatin stays hard and doesn't swell. Where it's been blocked, the highlights, they, that gelatin swells up. And then you ink it up with a lithographic ink or a, or a hard ink. And, and where the highlights are, it will repel that ink and it will take that ink in the shadows and, you know, oil and water kind of thing. And so you have the paper whites and the highlights and midtones. And then in the shadow areas, you have the ink, whatever color ink you're using. Well, if you think about that, when you've got what's called the matrix there, that swollen gelatin, and if you've inked it up, you take that, that, that print, if you will, that print, and you put it on another support. You turn it over and put it on another piece of paper, and you run it through a press. Mm. Just like a linotype, just like anything like that, you peel it off, and there's your there's your uh, oil transfer. Demache actually invented it in I think 1911 or so. Well, if you're doing a transfer on that, do you need to do you need to uh, expose the original matrix under a positive? Um, it, it depends on what you want, right? Okay. I mean, you still, so we're going back and forth. So so you're negative to positive. And then you're positive to negative. So your image would be reversed. So it depends on what you want. Oh, whether um, or not you want to keep the, the the final image with your original matrix, or if you want to keep your final image with the last piece of paper that you've rolled through. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a, exactly. that makes a lot of sense. So so really what you're doing is you're it's you're using uh, think of uh, photogravure, right? A etched copper plate. You mm -hmm. ink that up. And you, you put the paper on, you roll it through the press, you peel the paper off, and there's your photogravure. You think about your Woodbury type. You feel that that cut, usually a lead plate, that, that etching with ink, and then you press it down on a piece of paper, you pull it off. Same thing. This is using gelatin and just putting making that transfer onto a final support. Same with carbon printing, right? You don't use a press, but it's the same thing. You're transferring this image, uh, you know, washing away that tissue and, and you can transfer that again. And, you know, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is just using gelatin and a press and, and putting it on a final support. That's great. So what, what, whatever you expose onto that matrix, uh, your matrix is exposed. That's, uh, you, that's going to be reversed. So if, if you want your text right or your whatever, you know, like positive negative kind of thing, that's, that's the only thing you have to think about if you, but, I, I'm not uh, uh, too concerned about that. I'm I'm gonna I'm picking up this what's called a Richardson baby press. It's a 11 inch press. Um, it's 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 just small, but but it does really well. Um, and I'm gonna be I'm gonna start experimenting with these very soon. And the reason I like this is there's no reason why you could make it run a print, ink up a, a, a matrix run a print, uh, swell that up again, ink it up it. again, and run mm. it again. That's really clever. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> These old 19th century guys were pretty darn clever, weren't they? Oh, man. They had so much time and nothing to do, so they, they piddled around <laughs> a lot. They didn't have um, Facebook. They didn't, they didn't have podcasts to listen to. <laughs> yes, they didn't have TV, Facebook, Internet, uh, <laughs> cell phones, all that. Hey, um, I just got to speak up for the women. They had time, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, they did. And, and the women women did great things as well, too. I mean, look at uh, 
um, everybody, uh, uh, Margaret uh, Cameron, and and there are a lot of great, uh, really cutting edge women working, and they, they don't get they don't get enough attention like they should. Definitely, no, they don't. But, but I don't I don't know anyone working in the oil transfer process right now. So it would be interesting. I hope um, if people know anybody working, I'd love to hear from them. But um, I just this just very obscure. The only reason I know about it is looking into the oil um, process I, I ran across. Uh, I just started digging in Dimashe and I saw in an old book that he presented work uh, uh, in, at, in a London gallery that was called, in 1912 or 1913, it was called Oil Transfer and nobody knew what it was. So he gave him a demonstration of it. Wow. Some people loved it and some people hated it. What, I, what I'm after with this work and the platinum palladium does a really good job. It's real. My prints are really about 70% palladium and about 30% platinum, but it does a really good job of conveying this feeling. But I, I'm more, I, I, I would like to convey more of a poetic, more of a painting, drawing, um, just, just a more kind of poetic vibe to them, right? They're not so literal. Um, and and they they do they look good between the optic and the process and the the print they they look really good that way. But I just want to give I love oil printing, but but what I don't like about oil printing is that that final print I, I could just make there there would be some options that I'd have to make them super clean prints, and that's what I'm shooting for even on these palladium platinum prints. So. I'll see what happens. I, I don't know. It might all be for naught, but we'll we'll see. Yeah, Christine loves the Rollins oil. She loves the, the the painterly effect of it. But yes, we we do have a, a we do have a, a a I can't remember what it 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 it's that speedball press. Don't we have Christine with the the two chrome rollers? Yeah, something it's like, like that. It's like this big Perfect. wide speedball press. So I know if anybody can if anybody can inspire Christine to try it or anybody else out there to try it, it would definitely be Quinn. Well, Christine, you should give it a go. You're doing Rollins oil prints. Just uh, give it a go. Uh, it, it's 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 as easy as it sounds. I mean, there's some fine tuning you'll, you'll have to do, but a good final support. Um, run it through. Uh, run it through a couple of times. Um, I, I did read in, in some old literature that you run it through twice through the rollers. Then open it up, take take the matrix, just roll the matrix back a little, let the matrix breathe a little bit, and then lay it back down and roll it through one more time. They say the matrix will take on a little bit of humidity out of the air, and then it'll give its final uh, pigment onto the print, and then pull the, the matrix off. And you, I mean, I know you look at Demache's work, There, there is just some beautiful stuff. I know... This would just be amazing to have and super clean and super, you know, there's, there's no gelatin on the paper. All it is is paper and ink. That's all it is. That's great. Yeah. Try it, Christine. I'd love to, love to hear that you, you gave it a whirl. Whenever I get a chance, it sounds like something I would enjoy at least experimenting with. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And that's really what it, because there's no books on it. So so we'd all be out in this uh, sky blue. But I love punching holes and stuff like that, right? You go out there and you try it and it works really well. And it's, you know, talk about being able to do, you know, it's really nice, not that this is a priority, but it's really nice to kind of, you know, everybody's kind of a blade of grass in photography. Everybody's a photographer and everybody, you know. So, so how do you kind of get people interested? 
sometimes it's great to use something different. Oh, what are those? Oh, that's this process. And then you can kind of tell the story. They get interested in that way. And that's a big, uh, I, I don't want to call it a hook because it sounds derogatory, but, but it's a good way to get people interested in what you're doing. Oh, how did you make that? Uh, you know, and they're not photographs. They're, they're prints, right? They're not, <laughs> oil prints aren't photographs. Carbon prints aren't photographs. They're really, they're, they're prints. They don't have any silver gelatin in them. And, you know, they're ink, basically. So uh, it, it's a good way to get people um, to look at work and to be interested in work, something different, because everything's so been done out there so many times. So you, sh you should give it a, you should give it a try if you can, especially if you have a press already, man, go for it. That's great. I'm sure she will. Might be it might be winter, unfortunately. Yeah. We're we're kind of in our busy season, but but you need to put that on the on the top of your to do pile for sure. Quit well, you know what? I'll tell you this, Christine. You can do. Um, I'll 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 hammer it out in the next couple of months, and I'll give you my notes on it, and give you give you the ups and downs of it, and then you can try it in the in the winter time when you get time. That would be wonderful. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely. Thank you, Quinn. Do you have any last uh, last thoughts for for our audience? We, you know, we need to bring Quinn back. Because there is just so much his his we've probably tapped into a fraction of a of a percent of of probably what he knows in in the photography space. But do you have any last words for for us, Quinn? Well, I appreciate that, John and Christine. I I just I thank you for for having me on today. I I just I really enjoy it. I love talking about photography, and I I'd probably say to people really in closing, I, I I'd probably say that. You know, whatever, however you express, whether it's photography or painting or sculpting, I think it's really important to remember that that we're all made to express our thoughts, our ideas. We love something. We don't like something so much. Whatever it is we're doing is to don't let anybody if they're not interested in it, it doesn't matter. Be true to yourself. Make the work that you're interested in making refine that vision, reach out and, and, and ask for help when you need it. If you, if you need feedback, find reliable people to give you feedback. Like John and Christine are wonderful. Reach out to people like that and people that, that really know about photography and that can help you. Because at the end of the day, it's not about imitative or copying work or derivative work. It's about making your own unique work and everybody can do that. And I just encourage people to, to try to, to reach for that rather than reach for copying things and imitating things, reach, reach and find what you're really interested in making. And the work will come. It may take a while, but it'll come. I guarantee you. That's great. Quinn, thank you so much for joining us for episode 100. Uh, you're our first uh, official photographer interview. Uh, kind of wanted to do it in before, but just never seemed to happen. And then I uh, just sent sent Quinn a, a message one day. Hey, how would you like to do this? And uh, <laughs> and it just it just ended up perfectly with you know him finally getting some of some of the beginning the beginning prints out of his in the shadow of Sun Mountain project going out. Make sure to visit Quinn at studioq.com. That's s t u d i o q dot com. And then when you get there, hit up on top. It says blog, and definitely get that in there. Quinn, thank you so much. If you hang out Thank a little bit, you. if you hang out a little bit, we'll we'll get you into the after show. I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, hang Thanks, out, sir. hang Thanks, out a little John. bit. We're gonna close this out. You got it. Well, what do you guys all think about uh, about about the, the process, alternative process, and and was Quinn great or what? Because 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're an alternative process photographer. It doesn't matter if you're a digital photographer. It doesn't even matter if you're an iPhone photographer. There's so much to learn from that gentleman uh, that, that really inspires so many people. Let me know what you think. You can connect with us on our Facebook group or through email at podcast at underredglow.com. And as always, your comments might just make it into a future episode. And as always, a big thank you to everyone for continuing to join us. All the love and support we receive from people like us on Facebook, subscribing and rating us on your podcast platform of choice. And also a big thank you to our Patreon and subscription supporters. Starting at just a buck, you can get our shows early with our supporters only after show. All of that adds. Be sure to check out our other supporter tiers as well, which are geared towards bringing you along on our <laughs> on our photography projects with great rewards. Remember we, we changed that last week, Christine? Yes. Yeah, it's still in my brain. It used to be darkroom projects, but we, it's all photography projects. All of our links can be found in our show notes and also on www.underredglow.com. And now with episode 100 down, it's been our absolute pleasure spending this time with you. Please be sure to subscribe to Under Red Glow. And if we've earned your recommendation or other or to other photographers of any skill level or process, we would certainly appreciate you sharing us with them. I'm really excited to talk to Quinn in the after show. That's why I'm kind of rushing through this. <laughs> a big thank you to my co-host, Christine Milliker. Of course, Quinn Jacobson, live from Colorado. And of course, everyone for listening. If you're listening on Patreon or our supporter page, stay tuned for the after show. Thanks for tuning in. We look forward to visiting with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.